thewellnesscouch.com, streaming wellness into your lives. You're listening to The Inspired Optimist with your host, Dr. Jacinta DiPrinzio, inspiring you to create a life that is healthy, bright, and full of life. Hi guys, and welcome to the Inspired Optimist podcast. I'm your host, Jacinta DiPrinzio, and today I'm happy to invite Professor Paul Connett to the show. Professor Connett is the Executive Director of the Fluoride Action Network and is a prominent water fluoridation critic. In today's episode, we discuss all things water fluoridation and how it could be impacting your health. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Thank you so much, uh, Professor Paul Connett. Thank you so much for being here. Um, tell us a little bit about yourself and um, how you actually started this massive movement that you've got going on at the moment. Yes, uh, I'm a retired professor of chemistry. My speciality was uh, environmental chemistry and toxicology. I got involved in this issue in 1996 I didn't want the issue. I was very, very busy with teaching chemistry full-time. And also, my second interest was waste management. And that's an issue which has taken me to 64 different countries. So the thought of getting a third issue was not, for me, very attractive. But my wife, in 1996, gave me a bunch of papers. And she says, dear, would you read these? She gave me a cup of tea. I should have been suspicious. I said, what is it? She said, fluoridation. I said, take it away. Those people are crazy. Oh, she says, you've got to read it because the village is having a meeting this evening to see whether they're going to continue fluoridation or not. And I need to know. So, okay, so I decided to read these papers. But my, my predisposition was... I wasn't going to be convinced that I was going to find out as quickly as possible that the people opposed to fluoridation are crazy. I could tell my wife, I could give her proof. So I started to read. And the first thing I found out that was wrong is I thought the anti-fluoridationists had confused fluorine, Mm -hmm. the most reactive element in the periodic table, with fluoride, Mm -hmm. what it becomes when it reacts with something. Uh, It's like comparing chlorine gas which is poisonous and dangerous, with sodium chloride, which we sprinkle on our cornflakes right. or whatever. <laughs> Not cornflakes. <laughs> our potatoes. Um, but no, it, it, it didn't turn out to be that that wasn't the problem. They uh, hadn't got that wrong. But what I found out then was that fluoride is not chemically reactive, but it's biologically very active. Mm. It inhibits enzymes. It it interferes with G proteins. It it strikes biology at the very heart. Mm. And that is why I believe that um, there's there's no evidence that we need fluoride for anything. Uh, We need to keep it away from our bodies, not drink Mm. it every day. And um, I think nature's verdict is very clear. The level in mother's milk is extremely low, 0.004 parts per million, Mm. which means a bottle-fed baby in a fluoridated community at one part per million, which is typically, would be getting 250 times more fluoride than nature intended. To put it another way, mother's breast milk protects the baby from fluoride, water fluoridation, recklessly, in my view, removes that protection. 
Right. So I, I know a lot of uh, my listeners now would be thinking they're mothers with, mm. with babies. What are some of the health effects on children that are um, not having the mother's milk and instead being bottle fed? Well, because we're not just getting fluoride from, from water. We're getting fluoride from toothpaste. We're getting it from pesticides. We're getting it from pollution and so on. Well, the first thing which is not deniable, not even they deny it, is that if you put fluoride in the water, you're going to increase the number of children with a condition called dental fluorosis, mm. which is a mottling, discoloration of the teeth, and it's classified into five divisions, very mild, mild, moderate, and severe, and borderline, uh, questionable. Now, when they started fluoridation in 1945 in the United States, they thought that 10% of the kids would get this condition in its very mild form. Run the clock forward to 2010, and the CDC in the United States tells us that 41% of American children aged 12 to 15 now have dental fluorosis in some form. Not all in the very mild, 8.6% uh, in the mild condition, which is 50% of the enamel impacted, and 3.6% moderate or severe. So that's something that they don't deny. All they do is to say it's not a problem, it's only a cosmetic effect. But what it really means is the child has been overexposed mm. to fluoride. And for the rational person, the next question is, well, what else is it doing? Whilst it's damaging, clearly this is a, a systemic effect. It's from inside the body. It is interfering with the laying down of the enamel, the enzymes or something involved, the biochemistry of laying down the enamel. Well, what other enzymes is it impacting? What other biochemistry is it impacting in the bone, in the brain, in the endocrine system? Uh, they proceeded with fluoridation without answering any of those questions. Now we're beginning to find out some of the answers because from four countries which have high natural levels of fluorine, Iran, Mexico, uh, China, and India, we are, they are publishing studies which indicate finding an association between lowered IQ in children and exposure to fluoride. And at levels not that high, the, the, others, the promoters like to say, oh, those are at high levels. No, no, no. The one Chinese study, one of the best Chinese studies, one I know best, I've actually visited the villages where the study was, was done. They found that children uh, exposed to 1.4 milligrams a day, uh, lost five IQ points. Mm. That was from, from their study. 1.4 milligrams a day, loss of five IQ points. Well, a child drinking 1.4 liters of fluoridated water would get that mm. dose in, in Australia. That's but scary. probably less than that because they would also be getting fluoride from toothpaste and, and other, other sources. So this is now, now we have, if you like, the scientific proof or at least potential that this policy uh, is, is, is hurting children and, and is serious. If you shifted the population IQ down by five IQ points, which incidentally we may have done when we had lead and gasoline, if you shifted the whole population down, which is what you would do because you're exposing everybody when you put something in the, in the water, uh, you would halve the number of geniuses in your society and double the number of mentally handicapped. 
It's ridiculous. Mm. I mean, and it's especially ridiculous. I mean, this is not something that is is accidentally happening to us. It's not as if some wonderful thing that we're doing in agriculture or in industry or something has this unexpected side effect. No, we are deliberately adding fluoride to our drinking water. And to add irony upon this silliness is that the very children that we are targeting for fluoridation, namely low-income children, because most of the tooth decay in modern society is concentrated in low-income families, the very those children mm-hmm. are the last children who need to lose IQ mm-hmm. points. I mean, they've got so many stripes against them. Right. So... Knowing all of those um, ramifications for children's health and even the health of our bodies as well, why was it in the first place that the water was had has fluoride in it? Why did that actually come about? Well, it goes back a long way. It goes back to the beginning of the 20th century, about 1903. There were dentists in the United States who were puzzled by a condition uh, in Colorado and Texas. A lot of the children there had dark stains on their teeth and at the time they called it dental mottling but they they spent 31 years trying to find out what was causing that in 1931 three separate researchers found out that what was causing this mottling of the teeth was fluoride and that's why they changed the name to dental fluorosis Mm. but some dentists at that time thought Well, isn't it remarkable? You see these dreadful teeth with their dark orange or brown stains, and yet the kids don't have much tooth decay. You'd think their teeth would be be falling out. And and that's why they thought, well, maybe, maybe there's a lever of fluoride, which wouldn't cause too much dental fluorosis, but at the same time would protect against tooth decay. So that's how the hypothesis was born. And the optimal concentration that they thought that was one part per million. One part per million would lower tooth decay, but would only cause dental fluorosis in about 10% of the population. Right, right. And I, I know that some listeners will be thinking, well, don't we need fluoride in our diets? And I've heard you speak a little bit about this before. Um, what is what is your thoughts on actually, do we actually need that substance? No, there's no evidence that fluoride is a nutrient, none at all. To demonstrate that a substance is an essential nutrient, you have to starve the animal in an animal test, have to starve it of any of the substance that you're investigating. If it's a genuine nutrient, the the animal will develop a disease, vitamin C, scurvy, um, and and so on. Um, And that's how we've identified vitamins, because they were substances if you didn't have, you developed a, a disease. But no one's ever shown a disease caused by lack of fluoride. There's no such thing as fluoride deficiency. Um, Tooth decay, you can have perfectly good teeth without fluoride. Right, okay. So I I know that um, there is a lot of skepticism around it Mm -hmm. and that um, from speaking up that you even have experienced some... um, uh, negative kickbacks from, from people. Why do you think that is? Why do you think people are so opposed to, to this topic? We are up against a belief system. Um, dentists only get taught one thing at uh, dental school 
Uh, same with doctors, that if, if they hear anything about fluoride, it's good for you. The doctors are not taught about any of the side effects of fluoride, which is, which is sad. And that's gone on for many, many years. The curriculum at dental schools only teach about the benefits of fluoride. And that is the same with the, if you look at the health department here in Western Australia, they will only tell you about the benefits. They might just mention this uh, little speckles white on the teeth, dental process, and dismiss that as not being a, a problem. Um, so it's, it's a religious belief now. They're, they're, I would say the biggest problem is that the people who are out there promoting it, either in the Department of Health or, or in the dental associations, they're not reading the literature. Mm. They're not reading about these IQ studies. They're not reading about the fact that fluoride uh, lowers uh, thyroid function and so on, and accumulates in the bones. They're just not reading it. And so they're expected, uh, when asked upon, to go to the public and assure the public that it's safe and effective, safe and effective. But they're not backing that up with... Um, with an understanding of, of the literature. And, I, and, and you can almost prove that because I've been, this is probably my 12th visit to Australia. And mm -hmm. uh, the first few were with waste, I've dealt with waste management. But now the last eight or nine trips to Australia have been on fluoridation. And every time I come, local communities are challenging the Australian Dental Association, Australian Medical Association, the Departments of Health to debate me in public. Right. They won't debate me. Now, that's unbelievable. I mean, you promote something and yet you, you won't defend your position in open public debate. Um, and they can't debate because they, they, they know the science doesn't support their position. I'll give you another piece of evidence that proves that they don't know the science. I published a book with two other scientists, The Case Against Fluoride, in 2010. Now, we went through the whole scientific literature. We understated the arguments. We didn't overstate them. We backed up everything that we said with 80 pages of references. Transparent, right. absolutely transparent. And I'll tell you one instant, because I think this is important. Shortly after that was published, I was invited to talk to the New Zealand Department of Health, who promote fluoridation. And I was only expecting two or three people at the meeting, there were actually about 20. And they listened very attentively to, I went through the whole book and I got to the end and I said, look, um, we have done as much as you can expect from three scientists. We've made the, all the arguments transparent. We backed up everything with documentation. Now it's your turn. This is your practice. Please get one, two, three members of your bureaucracy here. You go through the book and where we've made mistakes, tell us, Challenges, responding kind, produce a, a treaty that responds to every chapter, every sentence, if you like. Destroy it. Uh, after seven years, nothing, wow. absolutely nothing. But it doesn't stop their spokesman going out in public and accusing opponents of fluoridation of being quack scientists, mm. uh, flat earth people. It's insulting. It's absolutely in insulting. And I can assure you, if it was the other way around, if they have produced a book, The Case for Fluoridation, within a few weeks, our side, our scientists would have gone through 
and done it, rebutted it point by point. And quite frankly, if we couldn't do that, we would have stopped opposing fluoridation. Mm. And I would today, if, if they came back with cogent arguments, except there would always be one argument against this practice, and that is every day they're violating the individual's right to informed consent to medication. They're doing to everyone, the government, what an individual doctor can do to no one. You cannot give an individual medicine without their informed consent, in theory. Now, in practice, most people trust their doctors, and the doctor says, take this, they take it. But they are supposed to get the patient's permission for any treatments. If you go for a surgery, I'm sure all our listeners have experienced this before surgery, you've got to sign something that you agree to have your whatever it is cut open. This episode of the Inspired Optimist podcast will continue very soon. If you're enjoying this episode and think that one of your loved ones would benefit from this information, make sure you share it with them and of course, give me a five-star rating on iTunes. It's now time for the rest of the show. Listen up while we discuss why fluoride is still in our water system the ramifications for health, and most importantly, what you can do about it. All right. So with all of that evidence that you're saying it is against fluoride and against fluoridation, isn't our government and aren't people supposed to be protecting us against these things? If, if it's so um, strong, this evidence against it, why is it so hard to actually now eliminate that fluoride from back out of our water? There's a very simple explanation. Today, they are, these departments of health, including Western Australia, are more interested in protecting a policy than protecting the health. This policy, as I say, has become a dogma. It's a, it's, a, it's a belief system. And I think the reason, I mean, this is conjecture on my part, but I think it's reasonable, is that they feel that if they agree now after 70 years that this was a big mistake, that they were wrong, that fluoridation, swallowing fluoride does not do much to reduce tooth decay. It works topically, not systemically. And if they agree that there are real risks, at least potential risks, um, if they admit that, they're going to lose credibility. Mm. And if they lose credibility, they lose the public's trust and I think what they're worried about is losing the public's trust in other public right. health policies. I, I suspect that for them, fluoridation is not big potatoes. It's not a big economic whatever. It's not a big thing in the, the run of mills, saving at most one tooth surface for a child. It's not huge. Mm. But they're interested in protecting vaccination which is a multi-billion dollar industry. Right. And I think that's what they're frightened of, that they right. lose fluoridation. So it's almost like um, arguing for um, vaccination by proxy. Right. And I'm not against vaccination in principle. I think they give kids far too many vaccines today, and I think it's absolutely irresponsible to have mercury, thymosol, in, in vaccines. And so I think it's, that's preposterous. Um, but having said that, in principle, I'm not against vaccination. I'm not out there campaigning against vaccination. But 
That's the only thing I can think of. And, and, and see what our situation mm. is. We see irrational behavior on the part of government where they're going gung-ho to fluoridate every last community. Right now in New Zealand, they're preparing to introduce mandatory fluoridation for the whole country. Um, this is madness. Why? Why are they doing this? It's irrational. So what I've said to you is an attempt for a rational explanation for irrational behavior. They're not actually protecting fluoridation, yeah. they're protecting something else. <laughs> uh, it's craziness, isn't it? Yeah. Absolute craziness. Um, I, I heard you touch on there that um, there was some pretty serious health ramifications for things like thyroid and, and bone health. What are some of how those processes working and what are some things that um, our bodies will have to deal with in terms of um, having fluoride in our diets on an organ system level? Well, what we can say for sure is that in the 30s, 40s, and 50s, doctors in Germany, France, and Argentina were treating patients with hyperthyroidism, overactive thyroid gland. They were treating them with fluoride to lower oh, okay. the thyroid activity. And the doses that they were using are fairly easily exceeded in a fluoridated community by quite a number of individuals. Now, despite that knowledge, the countries that fluoridate, which are already a handful, Australia, New Zealand, Canada, uh, Israel, Ireland, England, some of it, only 10% of England has fluoridated water, and the United States, of course. None of these countries are, have instigated a study to see if there's a relationship between hypothyroidism, underactive thyroid, and fluoride mm -hmm. exposure. Uh, there was a study published in 2015 by Stephen Peckham and colleagues. He's from the University of Kent. And what he did, it took him a long time. He, he gathered all the thyroid statistics from the whole of the UK. 98% of the statistics, sorry, 98% of the GPs, general practices in England. He got all those statistics and he found that they've, prevalence of hypothyroidism increased with fluoride concentrations in the water. So there were higher levels in fluoridated areas than non-fluoridated areas. Now, it's what we call an ecological study, and you can always um, criticize ecological studies. It's the weakest of, of the epidemiology, mm -hmm. but surely it's a red flag. Surely you'd expect other governments to be trying to reproduce uh, the, these studies, mm. but they're not doing that. Right. They show no indication of doing it. Always, what you when anything like this happens, then they marshal their forces. They do everything they can to um, to destroy the study, challenge the study, challenge if sometimes even ad hominem attacks on the on the authors, um, or criticize the journal in which it's published. Everything to, to down, downplay it. But what they don't do is to say, oh, this is serious. We better have a look at this. We better do a finance another a study. 
Right. Okay. And I, I suppose I'd love to finish off for the last five minutes or so is say some of our listeners at home now are wanting to have a bit of a change in their life. They, they no longer want to have fluoride through their water system. What are some of the things that we can do as individuals to, number one, uh, I suppose, either filter out those mm-hmm. things or to even challenge and create some noise and change these policies? Well, I would say certainly the latter is, is a must. You must challenge it. You must organize your friends and your neighbors who educate them and then form a little group and do what you can to inform the politicians say, we don't want it. We don't want this forced medication. Thank you very much. But as far as protecting yourself immediately, uh, the cheap filters don't do it. The activated charcoal filters, that's the cheap ones. Okay. The they, they won't remove fluoride. You can remove it with reverse osmosis. Yes. You can remove it with um, distillation, desktop distillation. And you can also use um, bone char. There are companies that are making filters out of bone char. Bone attracts fluoride very much. Um, But all of these are pretty expensive. And the people that can't do that are people from low-income families. And remember, they're the ones that are being targeted. Uh, so if they're going to continue fluoridation, then at least the government should be providing free bottled water for the families who can't afford the, this equipment. Um, and also another thing which would be very practical would be to lay on a line before the fluoride is added. So there's the waterworks, and then you have an extra pipe, a separate pipe, which comes out before the fluoride is Added. And you'd have pumps in town that you could go to and get your bottles of mm. non-fluoridated water. So that would be something that you could campaign for. I can tell you they've done, they're doing that right now in Hastings, New Zealand is one place where right. they're, they're doing that. Um, but the trouble is, even when you've got this equipment in your house, that doesn't protect you when you go downtown and you have water or food in restaurants in a Florida community, you're getting the fluoride. When you go to a friend's house, unless they too have got reverse osmosis or something, you're going to get it there. And then then you've got to think about when I take a hot bath or a shower. Mm. Most people can't afford a whole house filtration, so they're going to get a filtration on on the taps for drinking and cooking. The thing we do at home now, Unfortunately, we've moved to a, a new town, which is fluoridated. And we started with reverse osmosis, weren't happy with it. And um, we now drive 20 miles to a spring. Wow. We get beautiful awesome. spring water. We, we bring about 20, 24 plastic gallon bottles, milk, oh, water bottles, and fill them up. We do that every two or three weeks. Great. We're very happy with that. Beautiful. The other thing I should warn you too, your listeners, there are other sources of fluoride. Okay. A tea. tea. The tea plant grows very well in high fluoride soil. So often the tea plant is, the cheaper the tea, the more fluoride it's going to have. So you're going to drink tea, drink expensive tea. And we're so, talking about the, the black, the black the tea, tea leaf, right? Also green tea. Green tea has also got uh, fluoride in it. Um, and so what I would recommend there, especially for people like myself who love tea, I'm actually drinking tea now, <laughs> is I alternate. I, I have some coffee, some tea, some fruit juice. Um, so don't have too much of one thing. Mm. Mess around, play around with, with that. 
Also, tinned fish, pilchards, sardines, salmon, if it's tin, they often you'll find the bone, soft bones in there. And people, when they're spreading the sardines on toast, they will spread the bones with it. Make sure you separate those out. And mechanically deboned meat, all the patties, the hamburgers, mm. the um, chicken, whatever, burger patties, that's mechanically deboned meat. And of course, the fluoride concentrates in the bones. Mm. About 50% for mammals, about 50% of the fluoride we take in each day is excreted through the kidney. And then the, the rest accumulates in the hard tissues. But because of its volume, most of that then is in the bones. And that's another issue. What does yeah. lifelong accumulation of, of fluoride in your bones do to you? But the first symptoms of skeletal fluorosis from India and China, is just like arthritis, stiffness in the joints, pains in the joints. Uh, so again, our governments are not doing uh, comprehensive studies to see if there's a relationship between the arthritis rates in Australia and exposure to, to fluoride. But as the, the fluoride continues to accumulate, and it accumulates over a lifetime, unless you remove the source, uh, the bones get harder and more brittle. And what we're concerned about there is um, hip fractures, increasing hip fractures mm. in the elderly, which is terrible for old people when they have a hip fracture um, because you have to immobilize the, the patient and uh, they lose all their muscles and so on. They lose independence. They often end up in, in, in homes. Uh, I think there's some terrible figure, like I think it's something like well, 50% never regain uh, independence. Mm -hmm. They have to be in a home or something. And 25% are dead within a year of a hip yes. um, yeah. thing. So this is very, very serious. And if fluoride is contributing to it, which... The, the epidemiological studies are mixed. Some say some have found an increase, some have found nothing, some have found a decrease in hip fractures. So, but again, it's a risk that we do not have to take because even the other side admits that fluoride, if it works at all, works topically. Mm. So if you want fluoride, brush it on your teeth and spit it out. Now, I'm not advocating, actually, for our daily toothpaste. If you gave me a choice for society of whether we use the tool of um, fluoridated toothpaste or fluoridated water, I'd say fluoridated toothpaste. But I haven't used fluoridated toothpaste for 21 years, ever since I started researching fluoride toxicity. And what we should be doing is to look at what countries, 97% of Europe does not fluoridate. We should be looking at what they're doing in places like Scotland and Denmark, uh, where with very simple cost-effective programs, they brought down tooth decay in low-income families. In Scotland, it's very simple. Just when the first lesson in the first school, the kindergartens, the kids are taught to brush their teeth. The parents involve the parents. They also show them what the healthy snacks are which to protect your teeth, vegetables, carrots, and so on, not, not candy and, and the soft drinks. Yeah. And uh, they get regular checkups. And they've reduced the, um, the cost of treating uh, five-year-olds by 50%. Because one of the things that you remove when you do that kind of program is the, the, the frequency of baby bottle tooth decay. A baby bottle tooth decay is when babies suck on a bottle of either fruit juice, even Ribena, um, Coca-Cola, heaven help us, <laughs> milk. They suck on it for hours at a time 
and it rots the, the milk teeth down to the gums, the top teeth. And, and the way you recognize baby bottle tooth decay is the bottom teeth are hardly touched because in the bottle, when the kid is sucking on the bottle, the tongue protects the bottom teeth. So it's only the top teeth. And yet dentists hold up these uh, pictures and say, this is what happens if you don't fluoridate the water. They did that in Queensland. Uh, in Queensland Health, the day before the Queensland Parliament passed mandatory fluoridation, every MP in there got a postcard and it had a picture of the awful teeth. This is what teeth look like if they don't drink fluoridated water. And it was baby bottle tooth mm. decay. And then perfect teeth, what it looked like if we did drink fluoridated water. And that went to every MP before they voted. And it was a lie. It was a massive deception. And I think it's outrageous that uh, a bureaucracy that we are paying for, you know, citizens are paying for the health department, should use outright propaganda to trick people. Absolutely. I totally agree. Um, I feel like in the last half hour, I have learned so much and there is so much wisdom and gems there, um, jam-packed into a short amount of time. Um, Unfortunately, we've run out of time. Um, However, just to finish off, where can people find you and even learn even more information? So I heard that you said you wrote a book. Yes, they can get the case against fluoride. Hopefully, they can get the library to get it so they don't pay for it. Um, and also we have a web page. The web page is fluorideaction.net. The only thing they've got to make sure is they spell fluoride right because a lot of, a lot of people, including journalists, spell it F-L-O-U. Fluoride. Ah, see, I it's, thought that's how it was. You know, it's, it's fluoride. <laughs> fluoride. Think of flu. F-L-U-O. Fluoride. So Fluoride Action Net, you'll find lots of videotapes that we've made with experts explaining in a language that people can understand. We've got a huge health database that my son has put together, including all the documentation, all the 300 plus studies which shows that fluoride lowers IQ and uh, causes brain damage in animals and so on. It's all there with that webpage. Amazing. And I'll make sure that I pop them in the show notes so that the viewers, um, the listeners can have a look at that. Uh, well, thank you so, so very much, Professor. I've thoroughly enjoyed the last half hour. Thank and, you. And, um, yeah, I would love to have you back on in a future date when you're back in Australia. Yeah, well, you, yeah or you could do it by phone. I, I'm there doing phone interviews all the time. And okay. now, you know, with Skype, uh, you can do it on Skype, but you can also use Skype to make phone calls. I'm very there cheap. There you go. Very cheap. <laughs> you taught me something else. <laughs> Fantastic. All right. Thank you so much. Okay. Lovely. Thank you. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst The Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of The Wellness Couch podcasts.